Welcome to the Feeding the Starving Artist podcast. My name is Rick Goodstein, and with me, as always, is my colleague and partner in crime, Ron McCurdy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the second part of our session with the great bassist, conductor, composer, arranger, Mike Valerio. Mike, welcome back, sir. So happy to have you Thanks. back with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. In our, in our last session, we talked about some of the relationships that you were able to build with Chuck Berghofer and uh, Michael Tilson Thomas and others. For what I've discovered, most of my students are very bashful when it comes to soliciting or trying to put themselves, put themselves in a position to find mentors. Now, I think in your case, A, you were, were and still are a phenomenal musician, great personality. But how, how would you advise someone who's a little on the bashful side of how they might go about finding, identifying, and, and, and have finding a mentor that will help guide and shape their careers? This is something that I might not be the right guy to answer that question because I just, I've always considered myself very lucky and the right people have been put in my path. Uh, everyone that's ever been very important to me as a mentor Tilson Thomas, definitely. Chuck Berghoffer and Chuck DeMonaco, absolutely. Uh, Jack Budrow, who was uh, one of the guys that I studied with when I was at Indiana, and actually mm -hmm. maybe my first real mentor. Um, more on that in a minute. But all of these people just, you know, with Jack, okay, here's an example. I met him uh, when him and, and my actual teacher, Lawrence Hurst, at Indiana used to tag team teach up at Interlochen every summer and um, Hearst still might teach at Interlochen I'm not sure but they did that every summer they had little cottages right next door to each other and they were very very good friends and and learned a lot from each other as teachers so Jack came to visit and Hearst uh, invited Jack to come and, and see some lessons and that's how I met with Jack and then Jack was teaching for Hearst when he took a sabbatical when he was teaching uh, in China for a semester. I ran into him in the hallway. I just happened to be in the hallway of the round building at Indiana where mm. Hearst studio was. And I popped by to see what was going on over there and ran into Mr. Budrow. And I said, you know, I, I'd love to play for you sometime. Um, I, I know you're very busy. But, you know, look, he said, oh, geez, kid, you're making me feel bad. So I'm coming in and I'm, <laughs> I'm teaching 17 students in a weekend. And then every and that's how it is. And I just come in every other week. So, gee, OK, tell you what, kid, come in at 830 in the morning on Sunday. Now, this was a period in mm. my life where I was getting in at like 430 in the morning on a Sunday <laughs> after playing gigs in whatever town in the Midwest I was playing a gig in. Yeah, but I said, okay, if that's what it is, that's what it is. Showed up, had coffee and croissants at the ready. And, and he said, oh, you're a sweet man. You're a sweet man. I remember that was his reaction. <laughs> and we did a half an hour of lesson. And he said, tell you what, I have an hour and a half for lunch. Why don't you come back at noon? We could do another half an hour and then we could have some lunch. And I said, okay, I'll be back. And that's the way it went for an entire semester. Mind you. I wasn't enrolled at the time. I was finishing up some incompletes. I was playing on a borrowed school instrument. I was like a, a mm. nobody, an, an outcast, uh, a non, you know, like a, 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 a 
a, letch, a leech, you know, to, to the system. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I was not like the, you know, the, you know, sort of a uh, prize student. I was like, who is this guy rolling up in his Honda civic, you know, and, <laughs> smoking too many <laughs> cigarettes and you know all, all that kind of stuff um but jack took me under his wing and that's how it went every other weekend for an entire semester he prepared me for my new world audition and he would get pissed when i would try to buy lunch when i try to you know mm-hmm. pick up the tap he'd get angry angry at me for doing that but that kind of uh generosity and that kind of, you know, I remember once we were tag team teaching another student, a friend of mine, because he was auditioning for Pershing Zone, the, the U.S. Army gig. And he didn't have much to say on the electric bass, so I helped him with that and the jazz stuff. And and Jack, you know, got him up to speed for the audition on the classical stuff because it it's a mixed bag chair. Mm-hmm. And Jack wanted, he said, okay, you're going to teach, you're going to teach Bill, you're going to teach him his lesson for, on, on the stuff. I just want to be around. I just want to, you know, make sure that I understand what's going on here and that, that he's prepared on both sides of the coin. Great. Came in. And as we, you know, I was teaching Bill and just, you know, telling Bill all things, Hey, this, this thing that you're doing at your fingers here, that's gotta be more like your Mozart stroke with a bow. Just think about it in your fingers and you're going to get it. And just, just finding all sorts of ways to bridge the gaps so that he could understand quickly what needed to be done and how it needed to be played. Jack flipped out. He's just sitting there like smiling and, and shaking his head. We, we went and had lunch afterwards because that's what we did. And uh, mm-hmm. he turns to me and said, you have no idea how good you are, do you? You, you really have no idea. <laughs> is it? And that was another one of those moments. I was like, wow, I guess I must be doing something right because, uh, you know, it, it keeps getting over here. I really didn't have an idea. You know, so uh, again, I think it's important. Not not so that students get a swelled head, but just so that they can build some confidence in what they're doing and they don't feel lost or uh dispensable, you know, especially mm-hmm. when they have something to say or or they've they've got, you know, a good work ethic and are putting out a good sound and are really trying to make good music. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. But how to find a mentor, I mean, there are so many different ways that this happens. Uh, but generally it starts with just asserting yourself just enough to say, I, and I'd, I'd really love to play for you sometime. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. work, it, maybe it's not a fit. You know, you find right. that out too. Yeah. You, you, sometimes you meet your idols and your heroes and, and you see that they're just normal people. And maybe, maybe they don't teach well, maybe they don't have anything to say to you. Maybe, maybe they just don't have time. And that's all valid, you know, and it's, if it's not a fit, it's not a fit. There's no, no harm done, no harm done in asking though, too. And I think that's an important thing. I think you're right. Lots of, lots of people think, oh, he wouldn't. No, I can't, I can't do that. I can't reach out. I can't put my, you know, stick my neck out and, and say, Hey, can I come play for you sometime? But I think most people, myself included, if someone says, can I come play for you? I'm going to have them come play for me. I'm going to figure it out. Because someone did that to me, and then that got me to New World, which got me to L.A., which got me to where I am now. And I'm very aware of those spots in the in the you know the timeline that it could have gone another way. 
you know, and uh, I could still be in Bloomington and, and running the wheels off the car, which wouldn't be a terrible thing. Because when I was in Bloomington and doing that and teaching a handful of students and doing a bunch of gigs, I thought, if this is all that life has to offer me, I think that's enough. I think I'm okay because I'm making a positive mark in, in certain people's lives and I'm playing some good music with some good people and, and maybe that's all I get out of it. And I was wrong and, uh, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm happy for, for what, it's, what it's become because it's still changing and, and still uh, inspiring me to, to try. <laughs> you know, to, to be better and to know more because it's just so vast. There's no way you're going to know it all, but you, you have to keep trying. Mike, you're known as one of the best acoustic stand-up bass players and electric bass players. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, they are different instruments. They are different um, part, part of this came from a master class at Eastman with Todd Coleman, where he talked about Bach. And he talked about how Bach, you know, why do all the bass players like Bach? Because he wrote great bass lines. Because there was so much harmony that was baked in to the notes that he wrote that you knew exactly what was happening. You didn't need the little 164, 163 numbers. You, you didn't need the figured bass. You didn't need the changes. It was obvious where he was going based on the, the notes that he wrote for the bass. And he starts off playing one of the Brandenburg concertos, you know, with a bow. And then I think he puts the bow down at some point. He starts playing with his fingers. And it just sounds like the greatest jazz bass line you've ever heard. And that <laughs> stuck with me. I think that was, I was like maybe 19 when I heard that. And I think I got more out of my uh, counterpoint lessons because they did a lot of counterpoint in our theory classes. And I got more out of how to construct great bass lines out of, out of studying counterpoint and writing counterpoint. And so that's, that's part of the package. Um, but I just, it was uh, just a personal discovery that if I spent the time studying, you know, working on the electric bass, shedding the electric, uh, I didn't get the same sense of grounding or the sense of, muscle memory or the sense of just uh getting into shape the toning of the muscles that i would if i spent the time studying the legit repertoire because it would get you all over the instrument and you got to play all sorts of different music from all sorts of different eras and you know it just i just felt that there is more to more more stuff there that would translate to playing jazz, playing electric, playing funk, playing rock, all that stuff can be, you know, when, when you talk about Bach, you know, I had a theory teacher that once said, this is like the distilled essence of all tonal music. You know, he, he handed me a, a copy of the Bach chorales. He said, check this shit out. You're going to like this because he made all the moves. Every move that you've ever heard in a tonal situation, it's like, they're all there. Every one of them. So study this chew on that for a while and that's going to help you out elsewhere and he was right you know so that in the combination with the, the counterpoint stuff uh was very helpful but i just it was just a matter of uh trial and error for me when i put my focus on the classical stuff all boats sort of rose with the tide like so suddenly it's like oh yeah and that translates to this and i can do this then and and play this kind of a counterpoint thing or whatever on the electric bass uh, or, you know, how Bach related to 
building a great jazz bass line and the the harmony that's you know implied by a great line um that stuff just kind of came naturally when i when i would focus on one of the other two things whether it was electric or jazz stuff uh things you know intonation wasn't improving in the left hand because i wasn't playing with a bow as much and you know another thing that kind of was in, when i was in indiana we saw rufus reed play at bear's place on one of the jazz fables gigs which was great and i saw rufus's gig bag with his you know and he had a copy of the bach cello suites in it and that was another aha that's what he's <laughs> working on too and he's rufus reed he knows a thing or two about playing the jazz bass he sounds quite good i like it a lot and he's working <laughs> on bach cello suites because there's a there's a lot of foundational musicality there that is going it's like stem cells you know they can become lots of other things uh and and they're like musical stem cells where it's it's going to help the other areas of your playing and the other musics that you're playing if you study this stuff and you make some time to build that as part of your foundation i hope mm -hmm. that answers your question oh yeah thanks Wow. I want to change gears for just a second. Uh, sure. Both Rick and I are educators, and even though you're not necessarily in, in higher education, just hearing you talk right now, Mike, you would be a full professor with tenure at any school in the, in the country <laughs> based on your own knowledge and just your... your... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Coming and, soon. And every school. Coming soon. I'll, I'll have a space yeah. for you. But every, <laughs> every school of music in the country are trying to figure out how to remain relevant. And mm -hmm. our, our, we have a new dean here at USC and he, he, he posed a question to, to take a look at where we are now, what should be our legacy in terms of having one foot in the, in the past of, of, of the whole of the canon of the, of the traditional canon, the present and more importantly in the future. And he asked us the mm -hmm. question, the thought provoking question, I'll ask you the same question, how do you think music will be taught, uh, dispensed, and enjoyed by those who are around in 2050, basically 20. 43 years from now? How will, pe how, will people, how, how, will, how will we teach music in higher education in, in, in 43 years? What will be different? What, 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 what things will we keep the same? And what possible changes might there be? whether it be technologically, whether it be pedagogically of how we teach, what things will be, will be and I know this is, a, this is a hell of a question to ask on the spot right now without giving you a lot of time to think about it. But just, if you can, just maybe give us just a few thoughts that you may have about what are we doing right now that, that will be irrelevant 40 plus years from now? This is, this is a very thought-provoking question. And there's, there's a difference between what I what I hope would be the case versus what I think will be the case. Uh, if the last few years are any indication of what's to come, um, the world, yeah, there, there are several things that are happening to our community at large and our community as musicians that I I don't know if they're helping the bigger picture and the longer timeline. Uh, some of these things, uh, kind of the gig economy mindset of 
you know, we're just going to do this for the here and now. And we've got the TikTok videos and we've got the YouTube channels and we've got all this other stuff, this, this sense of multimedia and the sense of check me out, uh, playing by myself. You know, I think things have gotten more insulated and more individualized rather than uh, having any sense of ensemble or any sense of um, real community where we're playing, you know, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Now, the last few years with COVID really didn't help us with that because everyone was doing something at home. I was building base sections in my basement for movies like uh, the Mankiewicz film Mank and also the SpongeBob movie where the entire base section is six Mike Valerios trying to play as a section <laughs> on different instruments <laughs> with different bows and moving my physical person around the room so that it sounded like six people play. And that mm. doesn't do anyone any favors, that kind of mentality. And and the idea of, hey, we, we need a so-and-so, we need a such-and-such such a player to play this instrument. Let's go on YouTube and look for some people. And you find them and then you put them in an orchestra and you realize that they don't really know how to play well with others. And that's a, another thing that's a big problem. So ensemble playing is something that I don't think should go out of style and really can't because if music is about communication and connection, it can't really exist in a test tube, whether that's the YouTube test tube or any mm. other test tube. Now, I think Bach should always have a place in music because we're still making the same moves and there's still a lot to be learned from it, you know, hundreds of years later. I would love there to be a, a place for counterpoint. Um, so many people, you know, I know that piano proficiency is something that lots of people would like to see go away. I I don't know if it's it's as necessary because we have because the technology is caught up where you don't have to play the piano to get into a computer the way that you used to. It used to be one of the things that was absolutely necessary. Your piano skills had to be good enough so that you could put it put things in on finale or Sibelius or uh, any sort of a sequencer. And these days you've got MIDI pickups for guitar, you've got pitch to MIDI things for flute and and clarinet and saxophone. It's like you can play your instrument and get the lines in that you need to get it. Now, piano as a, uh, you know, going back to this idea of a stem cell instrument, you know, and that's why piano is so great because you've got the visual sense of the spread, mm -hmm. you know, of of the the entire orchestra in front of you. You can find everything that you need to find. And there's there's great value in that. And there's great value in learning how to develop a touch on the instrument and, and how that translates to different instruments. I, I think it's very important. But one of the things I would love to see happen is more of a, a, um, a focus on rhythm playing. And I know this is something I, I believe that USC has got it where there's a like intro, intro to drums class that people mm -hmm. can take. And I think that's excellent. I think it's very important. When I was at New World, I used to teach, because I play a little bit of drums, too. And uh, mm -hmm. I would have a drum set at the hall that I would practice on. And actually, 
during some of my time there because all the legit percussion guys weren't interested in playing drum set. I was the drummer on the Pops gigs. So we'd play the Doral Ryder Country Club, you know, golf course, you know, opening, and I'd be playing the drums instead of the bass. <laughs> and the perk guys were into it. Like, yeah, man, keep going, keep going. I'm going to go practice my, you know, all that, the, uh, the Porgy and best <laughs> licks on the xylophone or whatever, because they weren't interested. But I would teach guys how to play brushes on a pizza box, you know, to get this <laughs> idea of, well, no, you see the note, the, the, the beat is where the motion stops. That's where the beat is. This stuff that gets you to that beat, this, you know, is, you know, this is what we need to work on. And what was interesting is string players would get it immediately. Woodwind players, no chance. <laughs> they just didn't get it because this, wait a minute, you know, the huh. pa is, that's the start of the note. I say, yeah, but uh, boom, that's the, that's, that's where the beat is. And uh, they mm -hmm. just didn't understand conceptually. One guy did, a clarinet player. He said, oh, I get it now. Okay, yeah, I see what you're doing. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing. I think uh, rhythm is something that is woefully uh, under-focused in, in uh, especially when we get out of like very elementary music pedagogy. Ta ta ti ti ta. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then in college we do a little bit of sight singing and that kind of stuff, but it's it's generally not as as. I think the idea of the physicality of rhythm is something that can't be underestimated in its impact mm -hmm. on the way that someone feels rhythmically a phrase, and and it's going to mm -hmm. lead to better ensemble playing, and it's going to just lead to better execution on things. So I would like rhythm to be a, a bigger part of it. What else though? Uh, technology is a funny thing because it bounces ahead every couple of years, you know, in the same way that computers are, are doing twice as much as they did a year ago. And, and then the software companies try to catch up with that and the computer companies try to catch up with that. And we have this kind of arms race that happens with, you know, the, you know, what the machines will do and what the programmers can program for the, the new machines. But but it all has a shelf life that's going to be obsolete a couple of years down the road. So this is the trick. Uh, I know lots of universities are investing in a whole lot of technology that's probably going to be obsolete in a few years. So that's the big question is how do we stay ahead of that curve and do it in a way that, that's cost effective and in a way that's relevant because, mm -hmm. you know, you know, and I think part of that's going to require a study of what worked and what's still with us over the last 25 years. You know, what, what went the way of the dinosaur? What went the way of the MySpace page? And what, what mm -hmm. stayed on? And then look at, okay, so how can we sort of, you know, find a trajectory that's going to give us some shelf life? Uh, in the same way that, you know, why are we still playing uh, symphonic scores on films? There, uh, yes, John Williams is certainly one of the big answers. Like, you know, if, you know, a multiple choice question, John Williams, he'd be like the all of the above. Because, you know, <laughs> why do we do this? Because it worked for John and he's still doing it and, and he's doing it better than anyone else. So there's that. <laughs> but a study was actually done uh, by the big wigs in terms of, film scores and 
how they increase the shelf life of movies. And what they found was a symphonic score because it doesn't have a specific sense of time and place. It, it's kind of timeless in that regard. Increases the shelf life of a film rather than something that had an electronic score. And electronic scores generally are the flavor of the day in terms of their sound palette, in terms of you know all the sonics that went into making that score. And it makes it sound very specific to... 1986 you know the dx7 fender road sound right you know or mm -hmm. or the 70s where it'd be like the moog synthesizer all all these things would make something sound very dated you know on purpose mm -hmm. because that was the sound of that day or that week or that month where a symphony score it just gives it more shelf life you know a more timeless thing so that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, you know, why we're still playing on instruments that are several hundred years old and playing a music that, you know, occasionally harkens back to music that was written several hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think there will still be a place for the orchestra. Uh, I hope so. There's several institutions out there that, that are preparing students for a reality that doesn't exist anymore or a reality that's been greatly condensed. Hearst, even when I was taking lessons from him had to come to grips with the fact that he was preparing students for orchestra jobs and there were just fewer and fewer orchestra jobs available and he felt he mm -hmm. had a you know kind of a come to jesus moment like am i doing the right thing here uh, do i continue what i'm doing you know because i'm preparing people for a world that doesn't exist anymore and there has to be you know some sense of duty to you know to the music world at large what are we doing here's another thing it's like what are we doing to continue an audience for music and what are we doing in, in that regard because that's another thing that matters i mean and that goes back to all of the elementary music programs that have been cut from budgets and the mm -hmm. fact that we're just not building an audience as we once did, where there were people out there that actually appreciated real music instead of people that are getting it in the bite-sized, short attention span theater forms that exist today. So that's another thing I think we need to be at least as uh, excited about and and focused on is how do we continue developing an audience in the general public for music? And that's something that's just as important as how are we shaping uh, our young musicians to, you know, to survive in the, the current climate. So inquiring minds want to know, let's know what you're uh, working on this week. Sure. Let me look at my calendar and I'll tell you. I'm working on some arrangements for a group I play with called Musique. They're out of Pasadena. The music director is uh, Rachel Warby. And we're doing an, a, a program that, that focuses on Abraham Lincoln. So I'm working on arranging some songs for that. I had a meeting with her yesterday. Also, what are we doing? A Disney animation film called Wish. A Rupert Gregson Williams movie called Dear Santa, where Jack Black is one of the stars. Did a session... Wednesday and Thursday for uh, some sort of a, a 
streaming show. And next week, a couple more streaming shows on Monday and Tuesday. Kind of a mixed bag of stuff. Working on the new Joker film uh, with David Campbell and then with um, Hilder Goodner's daughter, who did the previous Joker film. So working with her through, that gets us into October. And uh, yeah. So Mike, uh, tell us a little bit how you balance you know, it's a work-life balance. It's, you're so busy, and how do you manage to take care of Mike, if you can? I, I hope my fiance isn't uh, watching this uh, <laughs> this podcast. Um, <laughs> it is a daily struggle, man. Um, I, you know, in my early days, I thought that I would have a family and be a father, and thought a lot about what it would be like to be a father. It hasn't happened that way not saying that it won't happen but it looks like it probably won't happen music does take up a bit of a bit more of my time the one thing that i have been doing as of late is i've made some conscious decisions to do more arranging more electric bass playing more conducting and what that means is that i'm just building holes into the schedule where i'm turning down work that isn't those things one of those things and I think uh, a very important question to anyone that's, uh, or a, a, just a, not even a question, but an idea, just because there's a hole in your schedule and someone comes in and says, hey, are you busy on Thursday at 10 o'clock? That's, that's not their property. Your time is not their property. It's okay to say no. I say, you know what? I, I can't do it. I'm I need that time for myself or I'm, I'm holding that time, you know, for something that is not what you're asking me to do. Now that only came after being out here in LA for 24 years, the idea of, you know, this, this is not owed to them. You know, this time that I have free on my schedule at that point in time, unless it's, you know, something that I'd like to do in which case, okay, sure. But building holes in your schedule is something that's very, very important. Just, you know, keeping some time open for for other things to make themselves known. Yeah. Well, I tell you, the fact that you've given us an hour of your time today tells us just how uh, special, we, how fortunate we are to have had you for this amount of time. Oh, but thank you so much for this. With pearls of wisdom, and I'm, like I said, as a, I'm so proud of you. I, I just, me, I, I, I've been blessed to have been an educator where I've had several students who've done great things. You were one of them. Uh, John Lewis was a student of mine at Kansas University back mm -hmm. in the 1980s. So uh, I think as as educators, Rick and I, I think we 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 think how can we pay it forward? How can we share what little if knowledge we do have? with those who could benefit from, from, from the 80 years plus combined years that he and I have of, of having been an educator. So again, Mike, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you. It is uh, my pleasure and honor. Thank you guys very, very much. So you've been listening to Feeding the Starving Artist with Mike Valerio, Ron McCurdy, and myself, Rick Goodstein. So until next time, we'll see you soon and keep feeding that starving artist.